Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise, and then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Bruno Massaias. Bruno is a former Europe Minister of Portugal, a star columnist here at The New Statesman, and the author of multiple books, including most recently, Geopolitics for the End Time, From the Pandemic to the Climate Crisis, which is very much a book for our times. So Bruno, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you with us on the podcast. Fantastic. Great to be here. So I want to dive straight into your latest reporting trip to Ukraine. And you've written an extraordinary, powerful, evocative essay from Kharkiv for The New Statesman, which we'll put into the show notes. But I wonder if you could start by just taking us there with you as best as you can. I think you wrote there was shelling on the day that you arrived. So so just bring us with you there on the ground. What did it look like? What struck you? What was the experience of, of being there like during this conflict? Ukraine is very different. Obviously, the war is now moved to the east. If you're in Lviv, you're having a very enjoyable day in, in, in the sunlight and with your family. And Lviv is really uh, vibrant right now with lots of people arriving. In Kiev, life is normal, but everyone talks about the war. So that's the difference. But then when you take the train to Kharkiv, everything changes. You have this sense of, of entering a long tunnel and at the bottom, at the end of it, there's obviously a city that only maybe 20 kilometers from Russian artillery. When I arrived, there was a, a brutal attack. It hadn't been one in weeks, but actually yesterday we saw a supermarket right downtown, a supermarket I went to to buy some groceries. There are very few are open. It was also bombed and there was no one inside because a curfew in Kharkiv is at 9 p.m. But in fact, it ends up being at 6 because every shop closes at 6. And so fortunately, there were no victims. But there's this attempt in Kharkiv to return to normality. But it, it it's an attempt full of, of contradictions. It shows a bit the Ukrainian spirit because even in a city that is still in a war zone, People are trying very hard to return to normality. 2,000 people are going back, but I have to say that's not a lot for a city the size of Kharkiv. And when you go on the train or even when you leave, there's very little people trying to return 
to the city. What does that kind of effort at returning to normality look like? What are the things that people are, are trying to put back into their daily lives? What happened in the past couple of weeks is the mayor issued guidelines for people to live the subway. They had moved to the subway. Many families lived there for months. We saw stories about that. The subway now is completely clear of those people. They left many reluctantly. They felt safer there. And when you take the subway, it looks like a normal large city with everyone going to their workplaces. It's odd because it's underground that life looks normal. Could be the London subway, beautiful subway, as we know, in Ukrainian cities. When you come to the surface, 30% of buildings in Kharkiv have either been destroyed or affected by the shelling and the missiles. And therefore, immediately when you come out, and this is not yet a, a, a city back to normal. And you write about seeing some of the, the volunteer soldiers there and this being a war that you fight from home, that people are going to the battle lines and then coming back to meet their girlfriends in, in the cafes. How are people coping with this extraordinary dislocation of both, you know, being able to, to, to sit and have a coffee in a cafe in, in Kharkiv, but then going off to fight a war very close to your own home in the, the following day. It's, it's very odd. People have compared it a little bit to Israel. There is that sense. It's not a guerrilla war. It is, in fact, a, a war you're fighting at home. And it is literally true. In all the pizzerias, uh, there are open very few, but there are no regular people. Everyone is a member of the volunteer battalions, uh, the Kraken in Kharkiv, which are an offshoot from the Azov, but with better public relations and certainly a better image. And it's, it is the case. They are there taking a break, sometimes just a few hours, come to have pizza. Didn't see them have alcohol. And then uh, they go back and you hear the shouting and that's where they go back to. But very brave people who are just chilling, relaxing, and then going back to the war just 20 kilometers north. And you write in your essay about Kharkiv as potentially the center of a new national movement for Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about what, what you mean by that and how you see the Ukrainian identity changing now? Because this is a country you've, you've traveled to frequently, you've spent a lot of time in. So how is this war shaping that identity? It has been Kharkiv for the last two centuries that has been at the forefront of Ukrainian uh, national movement, both in politics and in the arts, tried to develop a specific Ukrainian identity. That happened in the 19th century, happened in the 20s and 30s. And to some extent, uh, it is happening now. I talk about the uh, poet, the rock star, novelist, uh, Jadan, really a fascinating character, who used to be in the past an intellectual and now has become both a social activist. He's been collecting donations, military, but also financial for the army. But a rock star, there are concerts in undisclosed locations where Jadon brings people together during the shelling and has really animated Ukraine's spirit. And then we'll see. There's obviously what will come out of this. I think that's also an interesting story. A lot of cultural, artistic, literary experiments are coming out of this. There's a dissociation from Russia and Russian culture. Not, I think, it's fair to say, I, I interviewed the mayor, the interview may, may be published uh, soon, and there isn't uh, an attack on Russian culture. What he told me is they are changing names of the streets. Moscow Avenue is now Eras of Kharkiv Avenue, and some discussions about uh, Pushkin Street, so the main streets in, in, uh, in the center, and it could be changed. Another 
local poet and artist added a graffiti on top of Pushkin Street and changed it to English Street. And, and why English? Because really, Britain is enormously popular in, in Ukraine right now, enormously popular. And so we'll see if that happens. People are more reluctant about Pushkin. But this is the kind of interesting discussions. We don't want to have uh, anything to do with Russia as a political empire. Therefore, Moscow Street is offensive, a uh, mayor told me. But Pushkin, ambiguous as his legacy is, people like his poetry and his work as well. So this is kind of very interesting discussions that are happening about how to place Ukraine in the world and how to move forward, not just in politics, but also in culture and the arts. Do you think the kind of response that we've seen from Ukraine and the vehemence with which Ukrainians are, are now fighting what appear to have been catastrophic misjudgments on the Russian side as to how this conflict would go, do you think that may be shifting the end game and the long-term strategic ob objectives on the Russian side? Or do you see the war really now shaping up as a very long-term artillery-based war of attrition with the, with the Kremlin still pushing towards its original goals? situation is quite dramatic. Ukrainians themselves will admit that. So I don't think there's any reason for Western media not to talk about it. In some places, Russian artillery has a superiority of 10 to 1. The combat is no longer really combat, is an artillery game. So what the Russians do in Donbass is they will shell a particular area massively over days, long range, perhaps 50, even 70 kilometers away. Ukrainians cannot breach the Russian positions because their artillery is not uh, that long range. And after these days of massive shelling, they will send a reconnaissance team. If there's still some movement, some resistance, they'll all step back again. So Russia can fight with very limited casualties and Ukraine is suffering heavy casualties. What you hear from Ukrainians is we desperately need that long-range artillery as soon as possible, or the situation could become very negative. So I think it's a bit of a race against time now. And if those uh, long-range uh, rocket launchers uh, finally arrive, perhaps there will be some balance. The balance will mean perhaps movement towards a frozen conflict, but that's better from the perspective of, of Ukraine's goals in this war. But what you also see in a visit to Kiev in particular is how mad the Russian attempt to occupy Kiev was. It's just some dispersed, sparse forces that were sent without any preparation, without any support. You see the locations in Irpin. Uh, there's a limited number of Russian tanks that are trying to cross a bridge and they are within the range even of Ukrainian javelins. So obviously, Russian leadership was very poorly informed about what uh, they could expect, and that explains the disaster. But as often happened in the past as well, both with Russian military history and Soviet military history, there is obviously an ability to, to course correct. We shouldn't expect the Kremlin to continue making the same mistakes. That would really be a lot of complacency on our side and the Ukrainian side. So I think things will get a lot more difficult uh, from now on. How do you see the danger to the Ukrainians in terms of being able to keep the focus on this conflict. It, it, it strikes me that the, the calculation on the Kremlin's behalf may well have been that Russia would be able to withstand any pain for longer, that the West would, would revert to its distracted, divided, domestic, myopic state 
sooner than, than Russia could. I mean, how, how difficult is it going to be to keep up the focus on this conflict and keep that unity on behalf of Western leaders at a time when we're seeing cost of living crisis really take its take its toll, and, and particularly as we start to head towards towards the colder months. I wonder to what extent that could be a real danger to, to, to Ukraine is just keeping this conflict in, in the headlines and maintaining the will to, to support and to back Ukraine with everything it needs. That's a possibility. Ukrainians are certainly concerned about that. My friends in the media or intellectuals in, in Kyiv see that very well because they used to get uh, 20 requests for interviews uh, from Western media and now they don't get them anymore. They're not concerned about their interviews. They see it as a, a reflection of uh, waning interest. Now, I'm not as concerned because I think this is not Vietnam. The commitment that we're making in the West is not a commitment of human lives or even not that significant in financial terms. And so I don't see any reason why it cannot be sustained over the long term or very long term. I think Russia will have more trouble sustaining it over the the very long term. I do hear some voices. I was in Bratislava just uh, returning from Ukraine and people there, taxi drivers or people I, I talked to, were complaining about the war because they are paying higher prices. And I actually got involved in a, some discussions trying to explain that's not really the case. In my view, this, this inflation we're seeing is due to misguided policies during COVID and the COVID recovery. It was a supply-driven crisis, and we treated it as a demand-driven crisis through trillions onto the economy. That's what happened in the U.S., and I wish Joe Biden were a little bit more honest and say, this was my mistake. The recovery plans were unbalanced, but obviously it's in his political interest to say that this is due to the war, and he's been saying that. Uh, so that's the only thing I'm a bit concerned about. If we keep telling our electorates that they're paying much higher prices because of the war in Ukraine, then it's difficult to sustain support. And I'm not saying this because I want the support to continue, which I do, but actually I believe that's not the, the right explanation or very accurate about the causes of what we're seeing. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We've also seen some discussion on the other side of this. I'm thinking particularly of, of the French president Macron talking about being very careful not to humiliate Russia. We've seen Kissinger suggest that Ukraine needs to con concede large amounts of, of territory. Do you think these kind of interventions are necessary? Are they helpful? Where do you stand? No, I think they are incredibly unhelpful. What we've seen is that Putin stops when he finds resistance. If we're communicating all the time that he has, the moment he wants it, he has an off-ramp. This, I mean, the madness of this strategy is that Putin might even be encouraged to attack a NATO country because we were telling him the next day, if things didn't go according to plan, he could always backtrack and he could always patch things up. And he always find a receptive audience in the West to patch things up. So why wouldn't you be extremely bold and risk-taking if you know that if your gamble doesn't go according to plan, you can always backtrack? It seems to me obvious that strategy has to be to increase the costs of his actions. And all past history over the past 20 years shows that's what works with Putin. By the way, Finland's, uh, Sweden's uh, accession to NATO, again, you didn't see him escalate. You see him backtrack when he finds resistance. Uh -huh. This is the old sentence. You push with a bayonet and you stop uh -huh. when you find resistance. It seems to me incredibly misguided. And for me, the trouble is understanding exactly why Macron in particular is choosing this strategy, which no one can understand. Even French diplomats tell me confidentially that they don't understand it. Hopefully it will be corrected. What should they do? What would represent bone? Meeting the, meeting the bayonet, what could give that message of resistance? 
Right now, it has to be supplying Ukraine uh, with the artillery it needs in the quantities it needs. Because I'm hearing from the US that it will take a few weeks. And as far as I know, it really will take a few weeks. Sometimes the US will say this and the equipment is already on the ground, but it doesn't seem to be the case. I haven't seen anything on Telegram or any other channel of these long range artillery being used, the HIMARS or other equipment. And so probably it will take a few weeks. And I've also heard that it might be eight pieces or 12 pieces. I, I believe the US has about a thousand pieces of this kind of equipment. It's a very long, hundreds of miles long, and you really cannot face Russia with 12 pieces and four HIMARS. And, what's being discussed. So right now it has to be a sort of unconditional commitment to provide Ukraine with any, anything it needs to resist this uh, onslaught of Russian artillery. I'm also puzzled by this idea that uh, Ukraine cannot hit targets within Russia. That's certainly not Ukraine's goal. It's never been. But uh, Kharkiv, when I was there, it's being hit by artillery in many cases coming from inside Russia. It's 40 kilometers away uh, and it's happened a few times. The mayor confirmed that to me, that some of these artillery hits are coming from within Russia. So let's start by saying that Russia cannot hit Ukrainian positions from Russian territory if it doesn't want Russian territory to be hit. So we are tying our hands behind our back for reasons that are difficult to understand. But again, I hope this can be corrected and it's just some initial hesitation trying to figure out how to deal with obviously a very uh, tricky situation. Let me ask you two last questions because I know we're running a little little short on time. You had an excellent interview with the former Kremlin advisor Sergei Karaganov, I think in early April, where you asked him about the dangers of, of escalation and he talked about Russia needing a kind of victory. Are you concerned by what seemed to be a kind of implicit threat in his comments that he wouldn't rule out the use of nuclear weapons. Do you think that is a serious danger in this conflict? We have to be concerned about it and we have to think about it, but we cannot give in to nuclear blackmail. And again, our experience with Putin is that he uses this uh, systematically all the time, not in a strategic way, but in a purely emotional way to try to get some reaction. And we have to be aware of that and, and not fall into that trap. I think it was in the pages of the New Statesman that Dolores Friedman explained that this is rather overblown because Putin can't really achieve anything with the use of technical, tactical nuclear weapons. And I'm on the school of those who think that Putin is a rational actor. And therefore, I always look at whether he can achieve anything with what he is saying. And if he can't, then I think it's emotional blackmail that's being used here. And let me ask you a final and extraordinarily unfair question, which is where do you see this heading now? I think we can all have some analytical humility that are a lot of early expectations about what this war would look like and, and, and where it would go have been wrong. Where do you think we are now and what shape do you see the conflict taking in the, the weeks, months, perhaps years to come? Do you think there is a... Is there a compromise that could that Putin would settle on in terms of territory, or is he just going to continue to push and push at, at higher and lower tempo over months, perhaps years? 
I think we're in, in this for the long run. I'm actually much more focused on, let us say, in what I write, much more focused in advocating for providing Ukraine with what it needs to, to get to the summer and to get to the fall and, and to get to the winter and to keep a certain balance of forces. And I think then we'll see in, in 2023. To, the, the priority here is to get Ukraine to be in the strongest position possible. There may at some point be a ceasefire, but not an agreement, not a peace agreement, and that ceasefire will be subject to, to being broken within months uh, or within a year or two. But it's also important that the ceasefire, uh, when and if it comes, it's possible it will come, that we Ukrainian will be in a stronger position than it is now. I'm convinced that we're still, it's still possible for Ukraine to recover a lot of the this territory that it lost in this campaign, if it gets the artillery it needs. And so this is not the time to talk about ceasefire that the Kremlin would use mainly as a way to uh, prepare for a future attack. But we're heading towards something of a frozen conflict that, that seems clear to me. It remains to be seen where the line of contact will be, how stable it will be. But at, at some point, I think we'll be heading towards something of a large-scale frozen conflict that will repeat 2014. What do you think would change Putin's mind? What would it be that convinced him to bring this to at least to a ceasefire? I think the, this artillery would make a huge difference. He has been looking clearly for, very flexible in his approach, he's been looking for the kind of conflict that Russia can win. And Ukraine and the West have essentially, for the time being, to close all the doors and to make it clear to him that there's no way that he, he can keep winning. He cannot uh, launch a, a blitzkrieg and hope for a collapse in the government in Kiev. That didn't work. He cannot use artillery advantage because that will be balanced. Again, our strategy now has to be to close off all options where Putin can make any gains. If that changes his mind, fine. If it doesn't change his mind, that's fine as well, because at the very least, we'll have a more stable situation and Ukraine's interests of survival will at least be guaranteed, because I still don't think we're at the point uh, where Ukraine's survival as a viable state is entirely assured. Well, I think that's a, a, a good, if stark, uh, place to wrap this up. Bruno, thanks so much for, for being with us. It was really great to have you on the podcast. It was a terrific conversation, great insights. And we're grateful for all of you reporting on the ground from Ukraine. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all of our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and please rate us and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.